Scraped into the sun-baked sand of the driest desert in the world are the Nazca Lines, humongous drawings on the desert floor that depict people, plants, and a variety of wildlife. The lines draw out shapes that are beautiful and so enormous that they're best viewed from an airplane. But these huge drawings have decorated the desert floor in what is today Peru since as long ago as 500 BC, meaning that some of these lines are almost as old as the Temple of Solomon. They're older than Buddhism. The creators of the first Nazca lines were probably dead before construction of the Parthenon in Greece even started. We know that these ancient lines remain visible today because of a miracle of weather and geography, but what we don't know is why they were created, or who among the Nazca people created them. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 25, The Nazca Lines. This episode is part of a larger series about unsolved mysteries. So if you're into that kind of thing, go back and listen to our previous episodes about topics such as the Somerton Man, the Dyatlov Pass Incident, and the Voynich Manuscript. Hello. Hey, how's it going, Tyler? Good, how are you? I'm doing good. Um, I want to hear about your vacation. Uh, yeah, I just got back from Utah. Oh, okay, cool. Did you go visit I went, uh, Jeremy? Yeah, I went up to visit Jeremy and Lainey. Nice, and friend of the podcast, Jeremy. Friends of the podcast, yeah. <laughs> and Jeremy's wife, Heather, and Lainey's boyfriend. And we all went to Canyonlands. Ooh, fun. Have you ever been there? I don't think I've actually been to Canyonlands, but I've been to several sites around it that I think I've kind of got the flavor, but I don't think I've ever actually been there. Well, it's that, it's a national park right across the street from Arches. Right, yeah. And even though it's close to Arches, it's not like nearly as frequented. Mm -hmm. And we went to do this hike called Druid Arch, which is an 11 mile round trip hike to the middle of the desert essentially i mean you're <laughs> literally in the middle of nothing yeah and there's just this incredible arch at the very end it was unbelievable fully oh, recommend awesome. it to anybody thinking of going to Canyonlands. that's really cool yeah i've been to arches and i've been to um like goblin valley which is relatively mm. nearby and then when I would drive from uh, where my parents live in eastern Arizona up to school, I would drive through that, like, you go right through Moab and kind of up through Monument Valley and stuff. Oh, and cool. so I've, um, yeah, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful place. But I've never been to Druid Arch, so I'll have to go on my list. Well, it's a real treat. And the cool thing about it is you can't see it until the very end. As soon oh. as, like, you don't see it until the hike is over. And, and then, then all of a sudden you're there and there's kind of like this mythical plateau and it's all surrounded by these tall formations and the very center. I mean, like now that I'm saying it out loud, it's like, I can't even believe this is a real place. (laughs) And in the very center, there's just this arch and it's stunning. That's really cool. Um, The arches are, are, it's, I don't know if those are really found anywhere else in the world. It's such a strange, unique little thing that happens with the rocks there. So that's really cool. Because of the chemistry of the stone, I think. It's like the combination of having this Colorado River running through the area 
and the unique stone the fact that it's like weak underneath i think yeah. is why they create it it's like kind of a miracle yeah just sort of a cool little thing um well i've got a getting to know you question all right let's hear it kind of a meta getting to know you question so this is going to be our 25th episode Oh. Um, so we can have a quarter a quarter life crisis if we want in this episode can you believe we've done this many i know that's that's six <laughs> months six months oh I my know. goodness pretty much you know that's yeah uh-huh. so um that in mind over the past 25 episodes that we've done or 24 this <clears> year, 25th um do you have any favorites favorite episodes that we've done that you just have a particular liking for Honestly, I feel like I can say that I have really enjoyed every single episode. I know that's a stupid answer, but <laughs> well, I, but yeah, I, that's not what I dislike. I agree with you there for sure. You no, know? yeah, totally. Well, I've just loved every single episode. I've gone into it like jazz because we pick topics that we like, you know. So right, we can do one that we don't want to do. But there are some episodes that really stick out. Um, obviously, when we had Jeremy on to talk about flat Earth. I thought mm-hmm. that was fabulous. I loved when we had Lindsay on and we talked about the white ship disaster. Mm-hmm. And I really loved when we both watched The Lion in Winter before we <laughs> yeah. talked about Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yeah. So I, I, those are the ones that stick out to me. So uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine is on my list as well. That was one of my favorites. And I think it might have been because we had such a fun experience of watching that movie beforehand. Yeah. So yeah. um Anybody who wants to go back and re-listen to it, do what we did and watch the movie first and it makes it... Oh, fun. totally. Yeah. Um, the other one that I uh, really had a good time doing that kind of surprised me um, when we put it on the list, I was like, this one will be fun. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, this one might be my favorite was I really liked... Um, so Eleanor Rockertain and then the um, the CIA Project Azorian. Oh, yeah. Uh, that one was really fun. Also, partially because of the um, just the cool details in the video of the funeral that we got to watch and listen to. Um, so that one, I, I was really proud of that one. After that was cool. Yeah. Oh, so, I really like that. Yeah. So any of our listeners, if you haven't listened to those four episodes that we've just recommended to you very highly, you should go back and give those a listen because they're very good. People sometimes... Um talk to me or like reach out about specific episodes and the one that everyone seems to really love i have to say i love it too is the beagle conflict episode oh really interesting it's really really great i think i don't know what it was about that particular episode but i had a great time learning about it and it's you know kind of a unique corner of the world that we don't get to see very often so today we're talking about the nazca lines which is just kind of a fun little head scratcher from um, South America. And really to understand this topic and what makes it so cool, you have to understand where in the world we're talking about and what kind of the specific conditions are. And so Tyler's going to tell us a little bit about the geography, which I'm sure he uh, is dreading to do to talk to all of us about geography. <laughs> no, I hate it. <laughs> it's funny you should say that. I mean, I think going into this episode, I was like, okay, we'll keep the geography section pretty short. And then as I'm researching <laughs> out, I'm like, oh, no, 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 I can't leave any of this out. Because yeah. this is, this is, uh, this, to use an opposite pun here, this is a pretty juicy section of the world. I agree. 
it's really not juicy because it's a desert. But let's get into that. <laughs> if you have your hands free, uh, I would recommend going to Google Maps for this and turning on the satellite view. There's like a little button where you can see the map as a as it lo- really looks rather than as a political map. And if you type in Peru and go to Peru in South America, you can see that along the coast of Peru, where it runs down to Chile, there's this huge desert area right there. And this coincides with the Andes Mountains, but it also happens to be one of the driest places on Earth. There are three deserts here in a row. The top is called Satura, the middle is called the Peruvian Coastal Desert, and then the bottom is called the Atacama Desert. And the average rainfall in this part of the globe is 0.6 inches per year, (laughs) which I'm reading the book Dune right now, and it is kind of scary thinking about how little water that is. Yeah. (laughs) And this is probably even less water than in Dune. 0.6 inches per year is nothing. So to put to put in perspective, like the average, I just Googled this because I didn't I didn't know. So the United States, this isn't a super helpful number, just because if you think about the, the, you know, array of different climates in the whole United States, but the average rainfall in the United States is 38 inches a year. And where I live oh. in like the Sonoran Desert, <laughs> where there's <laughs> scorpions and rattlesnakes and like cacti and stuff, uh, we get 11 inches a year. So we get 22 times oh. the rain that that, that place does. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. And to use that metric, by the way, of average rainfall per year, even though it is a small amount, it's, it's also misleading because an average is over time and you calculate, you know, based on a whole glance at a long time frame. But that doesn't tell you that you get 0.6 inches of rain every day. Or it doesn't tell you that you get 0.6 inches of rain every year. You're going to have some years where you have zero and some years where you have more. So the kicker about this desert is that there are some weather stations that have been set up there that have never received rain, ever. And (laughs) evidence from the record suggests that there may have been no rainfall in the Atacama Desert from 1971 all the way back to 1570. (laughs) And if so, you've got your, your math in place here, that's 401 years <laughs> without so that's, uh, rain. <laughs> that's like from Shakespeare to yeah. Turner Overdrive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No water. <laughs> wow. It is so dry there that some of the Andes Mountains that are above 20,000 feet have no glaciers on the top. They just have no snow up there. Wow. It is also so dry, it has been used by astronauts to simulate experiments that they would do on Mars. (laughs) And why is the Atacama Desert dry? And here is where I would love for any of the meteorologists who are listening to this to explain this to me. Because I read this and I felt a little bit confused. I hate to admit this. But... Wikipedia says the desert owes its extreme aridity to a constant temperature inversion 
due to the cool north flowing Humboldt ocean current and the presence of the strong Pacific anticyclone. Here's the part that I did understand. The most arid region of the Atacama Desert is situated between two mountain chains, the Andes and the Chilean Coast Range. So that creates a double-sided rain shadow. You know, the rain shadow where the, the rain goes up against the mountain and then it gets stuck. So there's a desert on the other side. Right. It happens on two sides here, which makes it especially dry. Wow. So it, clearly there's like a lot of elements that happen to converge in this part of the world, making it an extremely, extremely dry desert. So on that note, I was reading a little bit about these deserts. And did you read about the Kamanchaka? No, I didn't. The Kamanchaka are marine cloud banks that form on the Chilean coast and they move inland. So they're like these big fog banks. And so there's some clouds that, and it's the moisture that makes up the cloud is so fine that it's, I don't, I did not know this was the thing, but the, the moisture is so fine that it can't form rain droplets. Oh. And since the 80s, so it'll roll in and some plants collect um, their moisture specifically only from these like fog banks that will roll through. Um, and in the 80s, they created, a um, scientists created a fog collection system. So basically these huge nets that they put on the side of hills and the fog rolls through and then it like collects and drops down into these little like troughs for villagers to collect. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's like, there's this like big farming of... the fog. Exactly. Um, Which is and, exactly uh... like Dune, by the way. <laughs> Not, I'm no spoilers on Dune. <laughs> but... <laughs> but isn't that crazy that it's, I mean, it's so dry that there's like a fog rolling through and it's like, quick, get the water before it blows yeah, away. Yeah. I did see that this area is considered to be what they call a fog desert, which is where the plants in the area only can get their water from that kind of fog. Yeah, like that's wild. No other rain. Right. So on the map, if you type in the word Nazca, that will take you to the specific spot that we're talking about today. It's kind of close to Lima. Um, and Nazca is particularly crucial to our story for two primary reasons. Number one, it is near the location of the Nazca people who inhabited this region between 100 BC and 800 AD. Obviously, we talked previously about the Inca people around the 12th century through the 1500s. There have been people in this area before, and the Nazca people were some of those people, and they had a civilization that we will learn about in a minute. So that's one reason. And then the second reason is this area is very important to the story of the Nazca lines because since the desert receives no rain and it also has almost no wind, because of these qualities, the Nazca lines have remained preserved. Hmm. If the lines had occurred in a place that did have rain and wind, they would have a long time ago been destroyed. So the fact that they exist in this extreme desert is actually the reason that we know about them today. So like Tyler said, we're gonna talk a little bit about the Nazca culture. So this was a people that was living in this ultra arid desert from about a uh, hundred years before Christ to 800 AD. So um, 
And to put it into a little bit of like European history perspective, 800 AD was the year that Charlemagne was um, crowned. Oh, That's yeah. kind of what was going on over there. Um, and so it's definitely pre, pre-contact, pre-conquistador by quite a bit. Um, like, you know, four. It puts us pretty close also to Alfred the Great. We talked yes. about him as like one of the first kings of England. That's right. Yeah. Um, so they had a pretty good run, 900 years, um, as opposed to the um, Incas that we talked about who had a shorter go of it. Um, wait, am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, the Inca culture lasted really about 100 years. Yeah, okay. And this is 900, so. Yeah, I want to make sure I had that right. Yeah, the Incas were, were much shorter than this. So a pretty yeah. good stretch in a very um, kind of, as Tyler has explained, inhospitable place. Um, and some unique things about their culture, a lot of it is shaped, um, not surprisingly, by the, the dryness of this crazy desert that they lived in. So one of the things um, that we can still see today, they're called puquillos, um, and they're almost certainly pre-Columbian, although there's some debate that maybe they built them after the Spanish showed them how, but the evidence seems to point that they built this way before any European showed up. They're kind of like horizontal wells, so they would dig into a mountain and go underground until they would reach water, and then make Mm. a tunnel out, a lot like a sewer system, with tunnels leading the water where you want it, and literally with like manholes along the way. So you can see on the Wikipedia page, there's um, uh, uh, the Nazca culture Wikipedia page. There's these pictures of like these little, they look like a spiral staircase that go down into the ground. And it's like a little port that goes down to this tunnel of water that they've directed underground to where they want it to flow from. So they go find water, like a water table, and then dig an underground tunnel closer to their village so that they can go draw water which is really remarkable. They're still in use today. Um, and that's how a lot of the people who live in this area get their water to this day is these like, oh. you know, super old um, underground water systems, which are kind of a marvel of, enge- a marvel of engineering in themselves. Um, they also, the, the Nazca people um, had really advanced and kind of finally made pottery and textiles. Um, you can see examples of it on the Wikipedia page. Very beautiful, um, decorative, both pottery and textiles. Um, again, on the Wikipedia page, I recommend going. There's, there's a, a ceramic lobster <laughs> that they oh. found that's really, really beautiful and cool and very intricate um, and kind of a great example of the, the way the colors that they would use and the, the beauty of their, um, of their pottery that they would make. Like other pre-Columbian um, systems, much like the Inca, they had no writing system, which makes um, our understanding of what they were up to, specifically why they were making these crazy lines in the desert, um, really a mystery for us. One other uh, notable thing that they would do is they had some interesting burial and kind of um, warlike habits. So one of them was there's a lot of evidence that they collected trophy heads. So um, the idea that we at least scholars kind of think is that during battle, um, if you killed somebody, you would take the head as a trophy. And one of the only consistent things about all these heads that have been found is that there's a hole um, in the forehead. And they think that that's so that you could like display it and carry it around. So that's an interesting aspect. Um, And related to that, they would, um, there's... a a practice that's that's been discovered that they did which was partial burial so they would 
you can see pictures of this as well. They build kind of a little enclosure, like about the size of an exercise ball. And they would put a body in there kind of like, um, like almost hugging their knees, it looks like, and just their head would be visible. And then they'd kind of brick them into this little, little igloo looking thing um, with the mm. head exposed and just a jumble of stuff inside. Sometimes it was like other limbs, like there'll just be a bunch of arms in there with people. So its meaning isn't really super well understood, but an interesting thing because heads were often taken um, on some of these partial burials, there are head jars. So they make these jars, um, ceramic jars, and then put it in the place where the head would be and they paint a face on it. So huh. if, if your head gets taken in battle and then you need to get buried, you can at least have like a stand-in head. So some really interesting burial um, um, practices there. Um, wow. And then there was a decline um, by about 750, the civilization had pretty much fallen, was on its way out. And um, the causes of this were, um, it's supposed that there was an El Nino storm, one of those kind of semi-predictable storms that comes along. And it um, triggered a bunch of flooding and ruined their crops. They were a, an agricultural people to a certain extent. Um, and there's evidence that, that the Nazca might have been um, cutting down this certain kind of tree, the Propecis pallida tree that grows there in order to make room for uh, maize and cotton that they grew. And that cutting down those trees um, really reduced the soils um, or it created uh, um, erosion conditions, um, which I thought was really interesting because the um, a lot of people talk about like kind of the modern age is the time when man is manipulating nature in a way that's like um, detrimental to ourselves. You know, you can talk about mm -hmm. global warming yeah. or whatever deforestation. We we've got enough technology that we're starting to hurt ourselves. Um, but that's kind of what I thought of when I read this, like, Oh, these people may have inadvertently done the same thing. Like we need to clear all these trees out to grow cotton or to grow our maize. And that contributed to um, poor soil conditions. So then when El Nino came in, their crops just kind of uh -huh. wide scale were wiped out. Um, but that's the Nazca people, really an interesting um, culture we don't know a ton about, but what we do have um, indicates that they were um, just had a, a lot of ingenuity and a lot of um, beautiful art, which is not always something that you see. Um, and especially in a place as inhospitable as this desert, you'd think that it would just be like tooth and nail trying to survive, but it seemed like they, they flourished, they had crops, they developed an irrigation system and they created, you know, beautiful, um, woven linens and, and cool textiles and all sorts of stuff. That's cool. Yeah. I had never heard of this civilization before now. I, I agree. I, I um, knew of the Nazca lines. That's something I've been aware of for a while and been interested in, but I would not have been able to say that that was related to like a specific um, civilization, which like we said, lasted a long time, a lot longer than the Incas, but the Incas yeah. seem to have a better name recognition for whatever reason. For sure. Yeah. So as far as what the lines are physically, they are just a variety of shapes. Um, some are geometric, some are um, like simple geometric shapes like um, spirals and kind of intersecting lines while others are really detailed depictions uh, simple drawings of animals humans and and some plants um, my favorite are the monkey 
the hummingbird, the whale, and the spider. I think those are all super cool. They're so cool. Um, very, very cool. And so these are enormous um, line drawings. So the combined length of all the lines is over 800 miles. This is 800 of miles, uh, 800 miles of line carved into the desert floor. And they encompass an area of about 170 square miles which is larger than the entire city of Las Vegas. Wow. So it's, it's really big, um, you know, the, the kind of overall area of this. They're spread out more than that, but um, really a kind of a big undertaking to do all of this. And the individual figures vary in size. Um, some are quite small. Um, the, you know, the geometric ones sometimes are just like straight lines that sort of intersect, and those can be quite long. Um, the largest ones are about a kilometer um, in length. Um, so a little less than a mile. And um, they're kind of just distributed throughout this um, desert in a, in a somewhat concentrated area. And they were created by digging. So the lines are carved into the desert floor and they're only about four inches deep and usually about a foot wide. So like not very big. Mm. They can be a lot wider than that and they can be deeper than that, but that's a pretty average um, um, measurement of this so like if you took a big like desk dictionary like a big dictionary you picture that and you'd set it down it would be about that it'd be about as wide as that book is you know tall and and um, about that deep so not huge um, and they're just simple grooves dug into the ground to expose um, a different colored subsoil and interestingly they're best visible from the air and as Tyler talked about, um, the soil and the desert all kind of combined to make these, first of all, possible in the first place, but also um, able to last as long as they have, which is, you know, a thousand years, um, 2000 years, perhaps. So, um, so the, the subsoil has lots of lime in it. And when that combines with the misty mornings, like we talked about, that's really kind of the only um, moisture you're going to get. It creates almost like a hard shell on the soil. It kind of creates like a crust. And so that is integral into keeping the lines kind of established and clean. Um, and as Tyler's told us, this is one of the driest deserts on the earth. The temperature is almost always like right at about 77 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's, uh, there's a very low wind in this region. And so all of that is combined to make these little troughs that are dug in the desert that aren't super deep or super wide. Um, it's helped keep them uncovered, keep them visible. And the contrast between the darker um, and lighter soils is what makes them so visible, um, particularly from the air. And they're also typically created in one continuous line. So... Um, that, you know, there's not really a line break, but if you were drawing it with a pen, the pen would always stay on the paper and never really be lifted off. So they were created, obviously, centuries ago, but they were uh, discovered or rediscovered, quote unquote, um, fairly recently. They were first described by Westerners. Um, there's a, a document that was published in 1553 that we're pretty sure is referring to these lines in the desert uh, by Europeans that had gone over. And so these lines, they were described then, but then they also were kind of rediscovered in a way with the advent of planes. So Peruvian military and civilian pilots who were passing in the air were able to really get a good look at these and kind of 
uh, in a way rediscover them because you can see them from nearby hills. But as you can imagine, if you're flying a plane, this is going to catch your attention in 19, you know, 30, you're in some old fashioned plane flying over the desert and you just see these beautiful and intricate drawings on the on the um, desert floor. And so that's all, really kind of what it took to get attention back to them was we had to be able to get high enough to, to appreciate kind of their scale. And um, that's, um, that's basically the Nazca lines. They're, they're really very simple in their construction. There's lots of other um, kind of earth modification, like there's mound builders in the Eastern United States that were these great undertakings to build big mounds. And there's sort of other cultural things you can point to where something similar has gone on, where the earth has been modified or, or even just building buildings, building the pyramids. But this is, uh, it strikes me, they're so simple. It's just a mm -hmm. little ditch um, that, you know, it wouldn't take huge army of workers to do. It wouldn't take, I mean, presumably take quite a long time. But it's just, you know, just a dug little channel through the desert floor, but in these beautiful uh, geometric and, you know, biological patterns. If you still have your Google Maps open with the satellite view on it, I was not able to do this, but I think you can see them if you do oh, a little yeah. bit of digging. And there are some YouTube clips where they'll show you, they'll kind of like highlight the lines so that you can really see what you're looking at. It's wild. Very wild. Yeah. And of course, all of the images of the act from the sky um, are on the Wikipedia page and you can Google them and see, um, see the different images. And I think they're very, um, most of them are pretty easy to tell what they are. Yeah. Like the hummingbird. It's like, oh yeah, that's a hummingbird. Yeah. <laughs> the monkey in yeah. particular, I find striking. Mm -hmm. It's just yeah. stunning. There's a, there's also a, I think it's a heron or oh, the heron. some kind of bird. I felt like that one was more um, abstract, isn't it? Yeah. yeah it's not quite and, yeah, stereotypical. They, yeah, they they vary quite a bit. And one of the birds, um, let me see which one it is. Anyway, one of the birds, it's got, you know, if you can picture like a stork, or like a big bird with tall legs like that, you know how they have like a big knobby knee? Oh, oh! It's the con. It's the condor. Can you picture that? Like it's kind of got an elbow, like a chicken. Yeah, yeah. Like uh -huh. a, uh, if you Google the image of Nazca lines condor, it's even got that detail. So it's oh. got like a talon claw. It's got all these feathers all over it. But then it's got. I was showing my wife, and she's like, we were talking about like, look, it's got the little yeah, knee uh -huh. that like a bird would have. So they're they're simple just because they're lines and and fairly blocky. But they're they're quite detailed, and I think you can tell like exactly what they are, and they're they're beautiful. I I was thinking if I were a tattoo person, it could be cool to get a Nazca line tattoo. Wouldn't that, that would be, be really <laughs> be cool. I really love the tree. I think the tree is pretty, yeah. and the giant yeah. is spooky. Yeah, that's like the human. Form. Yeah, uh huh. But I think a cool yeah. thing about these is that there's so much personality in the way that they're drawn, and yes. I don't. I don't know if they were drawn by the same person, but they have similar features. Like there's like these finger-like elements to the spider and the hummingbird. They all have these very finger-like lines going everywhere. Yeah. It's neat. Yeah. Almost like, like, especially looking at the spider. And I know that 
a podcast is we're and we're talking about visual images, but you can Google. It. <laughs> but um, the spider, it when you look at it, it's almost like something that you would see at a really good like corn maze, uh-huh. you know, yeah, <laughs> like from the sky or something. It's it's really well. It's pretty symmetrical and 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 cool looking. And I I agree. It's um, you can kind of see a similar style throughout. Um, and you but you raise a good point, which is what we're kind of going to spend the rest of our time talking about. You said. I don't know if the same person made them. Well, we don't know really mm-hmm. anything about that. We don't know <laughs> like who made them, why they made them. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of the controversy and the mystery that, that follows these things. I think this is also, I say this every time we talk about these mysteries, but it, it is part of the, the fun of all of this is we just have no real idea. There are scholars who have guesses as to why, the Nazca culture might have created these really big, elaborate, I mean, tons of work. I've been digging out in my yard for landscaping purposes, and um, it's hard work, especially in a desert, and we just don't know why they did it. Um, there are some guesses. Um, there's people who think that it could be um, have religious significance. People have suggested that it's like astronomical, like related to somehow charting the stars or, or mimicking, um, you know, constellations but we we really don't know anything about who you know for what purpose these were made or or what you know function they served in society or who in in the society would have been interested in making these and we have to make a nod of course to the elephant in the room here which is that the nazca lines have been discussed by um you know theorists as maybe not have even been made by man obviously but perhaps so by some <laughs> extraterrestrial influence. Um, they do, and that's how of... little we know, you know, because we don't have anything solid. So, if you that can't theory, prove of it course, was comes aliens. into play. If you can't prove it was an aliens, then maybe it, it was. was probably aliens. <laughs> um, <laughs> they do kind of fit the uh, the like the crop circle pattern. Yeah, they're big. They're beautiful. Like they're kind of seen from above. They're these spooky like, something that a spaceship and... could have made that yeah. a person wouldn't have known to yeah. do. You know, yeah. Well, people have made um, a big deal about the fact that these are like to plan this out and to make it as symmetrical as it is. It almost yeah. you'd almost have to be looking at it from above. That's kind of been an argument that's been put forward. And there's actually been people who've suggested that maybe the Nazca had. <laughs> um, like really primitive hot air balloons that they use for this purpose. Oh, huh. now that theory is pretty much dismissed out of hand just because like, there's no evidence of that. <laughs> there's other ways they could have been made, but that's like how little we know about this, that it's like, well, this is pretty wild. Maybe they had hot air balloons. And, um, and that's sort <laughs> well, of, well, we've never, we've never found the latex. So <laughs> right. the archeological evidence is scant. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's, and that's kind of how the, like the research and the, 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 the smart people who are talking about this, that's kind of how the conversation is where someone's like, well, we think that it's, um, you know, it, look at all this evidence we have that these were, um, they're pointing to water sources. And then someone else will come along and be like, I reviewed all of the information that, you know, Marcus Rindell and Johnny Quandrondo Island did. And, uh, nothing that they looked at suggests that to me at all and it's it's really catty to like read the like the possible purposes section um and scholarship is often that way people are responding to each other 
but it's really funny because nobody has any idea. And so people are like, well, it seems like it might, you know, represent the Milky Way. And then someone comes along and it's like, that's ridiculous. It's not the Milky Way. Yeah, they're they're calling each other, each other out for no evidence when it's like, okay, well, there is no evidence. Right. What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just guessing here. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe pick another topic to study if we're real evidence junkies here. Because... If you're going to be like that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so I mean, there's been people who have said that it represents, um, like I said, um constellations in the sky and there's like an art historian who said that the people may have used the lines um as giant primitive looms to fabricate the extremely long strings of textiles like the 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 weaving that you'd need to do and it's like i guess that's possible but where did you come up with that <laughs> yeah and so people are just kind of trying their their very very best um but one of the things that i think because we know so little that is really um entertaining to me to think about is like what if these were just made by like punk kids and like the (laughs) village elders were like dang kids out there drawing lines in the cotton fields how come you gotta and then you know something terrible happened to their culture and they're just like cemented in this um, desert forever. And it was just like the, the the Atacama Bart Simpsons who did this and everyone hated this, it. This is their version of like the train graffiti. Yeah. That you see across the country. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I think that every time, like I've done a few um, trips and seen some really cool Native American like rock art and um and if you even if you think back to like the cave art in france and all these like ancient evidence of people and people get really and i don't think they're wrong um like i've read some really moving things about like this cave art from france is like humanity's first glimmer of of trying to express itself through art and it's like oh that's so true this is so cool and then it's like or this was like graffiti Which I don't think necessarily. Someone was upset about the cave paintings at Lascaux being yeah. defacing their rock wall. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh, I just cleaned this, guys. <laughs> this is my rock wall. Yeah, and yeah. I also, I also wonder. I mean, of course, we don't know anything, and so it's fun to think about. Like, did they expect these to last this long? Like, yeah. did, did they know that like the, this particular desert was going to maintain these things for this long um they would i think probably be surprised to know that this many hundreds of years later they're still there and we're still wondering about them and really kind of puzzled by them and it's also interesting to think that maybe other people did this but uh it just the deserts uh in those areas didn't preserve it as well yeah other civilizations could have done this right yeah maybe the egyptians were like all about this but then you Mm -hmm. know they have more winds and more rain and yeah what do you think it was do you have a theory um i would say obviously based on no evidence because there isn't any um (laughs) just looking at um their sculptures again that lobster is really beautiful it's like a i don't know it's just like this kind of swoopy lines the lobster um ceramic thing i was saying earlier i i like to think that this was just for for like expression just for fun just yeah. a form of like artistic, let's go draw something. Um, if you kind of figured out like, oh, look how different the dirt color is. And you could draw, you know, like the way kids draw in snow or 
or on the sand in the beach, it's kind of fun to draw little figures. And um, once they figured out that you could do this from, you know, on a greater scale, it had to have taken, I would imagine, some cooperation, somebody up on a hill kind of saying, all right, this is the direction we need to go. And so uh -huh. I kind of like to think that it was just like the villagers like making some art. I don't know. I don't know. Either that or punk kids. I think the punk kids idea is pretty fun. <laughs> what about my you? theory? Was, yeah, my theory was much more grandiose, I think, and a little bit grave. And that's just that these are so intricate. And they couldn't have been viewed by any, you know, location because unless they had tall buildings back then, but I don't think they did. There's so much like detail that's gone into it. It required a lot of effort. It couldn't have just been done by one person. To me, it feels religious. Yeah. And I think it's kind of neat to think about. We know that people in this part of the world worshipped a sun deity and thought of their gods as living above the earth. Isn't it kind of cool if they thought, hey, I want to show the gods what we have down here. <laughs> Look, we yeah. have, this is a monkey. This is one of our monkeys. <laughs> and this is a spider. And this is a tree. And I don't know why they picked a giant, but they picked yeah. a giant. And they wanted almost just to be noticed by the gods that lived above them. I feel like I could see that being one of the reasons i love that like here's a flower do you have flowers up there <laughs> right yeah it's, isn't it kind of like what maybe we should do an episode about this but whatever that capsule is that's in space that has yeah. like what we have sent out to the universe yeah. i feel like there's like a drawing of a man and a woman and mm -hmm. i don't remember what else they put like a beatles record or something that would be a great thing to discuss yeah it's the uh is it is that the voyager discs i think Oh yeah, yeah. We should. Yeah, and it's that. yeah, like it's got like Chuck Berry and um, uh -huh. like Beethoven on it, and we just sent it yeah. out. Yeah, oh, their version of that, right? Yeah, that's a really lovely idea. It's there, just trying to reach out to whatever else is out there. It's really the opposite of the extraterrestrial creation idea, right? Not mm -hmm. created by aliens, but talking to them. Thanks for listening. My first footnote for this episode is to clarify the time period discussed. Throughout the episode, we talk about various periods in which these lines may have been created, and the estimated range is quite broad. They could be as old as 500 BC, as I mentioned in the intro to the episode, or they may be a thousand years newer than that, emerging around 500 AD. Either way, we're talking about some super old lines. Second, while I do love and adhere to Tyler's theory that the lines were religious in nature, I read something recently on that topic that made me laugh and it goes like this. Religious purposes is archaeologist for I have no idea. <laughs> so take that for what it's worth. Thank you for listening. We love making these episodes and our listeners motivate us to keep recording. If you want to send us a message, suggest an episode topic, or just say hi, check out at Pod on Twitter. Or on Instagram, check out at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, or you can email us at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia at gmail.com. See you next time.